Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, the issues that matter locally and nationally to the lesbian, gay, transgender, bisexual, and queer community. We speak to local experts and activists about the LGBTQ news you need to know. Later in the show, one showcases paintings held by bright blue markers, another screens summer movies, and one features 10,000 lanterns in a forest setting. Romania's Mary Cemetery, Hollywood's Forever Cemetery, and Tokyo's Mount Koya are all grave sites highlighted in a book that offers a different kind of travel tour. Lauren Rhodes is the author of the cheekily titled 199 Cemeteries to See Before You Die. It's our November selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, joining me in the studio... E.J. Graff, award-winning journalist, commentator, and author. Graff is also a senior fellow at Brandeis University's Schuster Institute for Investigative Journalism, where she researches and reports on gender and sexuality issues. Welcome, E.J. Hi, Kelly. Grace Sterling Stowell, executive director of the Boston Alliance of Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual, Transgender Youth, or Bagley. She has been an activist and leader in the social justice and queer communities for more than 35 years. Hello, Grace. Hi, Glad to be here. Thanks. I'm glad to have you. And Jansen Wu, Executive Director of Boston GLAD, GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders. Jansen has been extensively involved in GLAD's legislative and policy work throughout New England, previously working as a staff attorney and the Deputy Director of GLAD. Welcome, Jansen. Thanks so much for having me. So we like to pull together when we see a preponderance of interesting stories going on, folks like yourselves who can really add something special to the conversation. So let's start with the transgender bill here in Massachusetts. I hate to use the common used phrase, but a lot of people refer to it as the bathroom bill. And it's been back and forth, as you know, in discussion in general. Governor Baker signed the bill into law last year, but now there's a challenge. And... Some people are really concerned that it may actually be overturned. Jensen, I'm going to start with you on this. Well, the law actually does so much more. I mean, it protects trans people in the Commonwealth in everything, in their jobs, in their homes from being evicted, and then also in public spaces like hospitals and restaurants where everyone should be able to be served and be safe and secure. And that's what we're really trying to protect, the ability for transgender people to live safely, free from discrimination in their lives. And we feel confident that the people of Massachusetts ultimately will vote to preserve this law, vote to affirm that Massachusetts has always been on the cutting edge of civil rights and will continue to do so. Grace, it's been a year. And as one analyst said it better than I could, the sky did not fall. So what do you say to people who say we're working hard to reverse this? 
even though for most Massachusetts citizens, by the way, a majority of people supported this, it seems to be working out fine. Well, absolutely. And we know that from other parts of the country that has passed similar legislation that uh, the sky hasn't fallen and that this is really about the safety and protection of trans people. And and I work with young people, so in particularly young people in schools and in communities who are most vulnerable and most needing these protections. So I think it's important, and I certainly hope and have faith that the people of Massachusetts will, will vote to preserve the protections that we've put in place. In other states, there have been different responses to similar kinds of bills. So there's a public conversation going on across the country, EJ. But Massachusetts, many of us think, is different from the other places where there's been kind of a struggle. So I wonder if you think the same kinds of objections from the Massachusetts Family Institute is really bringing the charge to reverse the bill will happen here and have any impact in the end. I don't know. Maybe Jansen has the polling on it. I haven't Mm -hmm. seen the polling. Mm -hmm. But I would guess that very few people in Massachusetts know the bill passed originally, right? Mm -hmm. So I think there's not the cultural turmoil there is in some place like North Carolina or Texas. It depends on what kind of funding they have to press their fears forward. The ads that make people feel that their children aren't safe going to the bathroom can be very effective. It can be kind of terrifying. I don't know what the Trans Alliance has got ready for to fight back on those kinds of um, fear-mongering things. Because we haven't really, I've not seen any of those kinds of ads yet. I know there's some distance before we have to think about it. But there's a lot of conversation about it locally still. So, Jansen, I would expect, what would you expect would be the chief argument against it? And how do you respond to that? Well, you know, as as much as Massachusetts has been on the forefront of civil rights in so many areas, we also know that we're not immune from fear. Um, And fear is a really powerful motivator for so many people across the country and here in Massachusetts. And we know that's exactly what our opponents will um, hone in on, the fear, the unfounded fear, that this law would allow sexual predators to enter restrooms and sexually assault women and children. And nothing... Nothing could be farther from the truth. I mean, we have a strong coalition that includes law enforcement um, and as well as sexual assault victims and advocates uh, who have come out loud and clear saying that this is not a real concern, that in all the different states, I think up to almost 20 states now that have passed similar laws, we have not seen any increase in uh, safety concerns um, in public spaces, including restrooms. But we are ready. We know that this is where our opponents will go. This is exactly where they went during the marriage fight, where they led with the fear that children would learn about marriage in schools. And we're going to stay above that. We're really going to talk about the reality of transgender people's lives and their equal dignity and humanity in our commonwealth. And the need to pee. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> really, really basic if trans people... I'm not trans, so please correct me, someone, Mm. if I go off. But Mm. trans people need to pee. Everybody's human. And if you can't pee safely, I know so many people who have a lifetime of terror of going into either restroom Mm. because either way you could get beaten up or yelled at. If you can't pee, there's a lot of health consequences. Mm. So calling it the bathroom bill, I think, while it's reductive, is also accurate because I know it's a pretty central concern for being a human being. Well, a couple of things. This will be the first time ever, according to this article, that uh, U.S. citizens will be asked to vote on repealing 
a transgender law. That has not happened. Both Massachusetts and Montana will will face ballot initiatives, but ours is about repealing what's already there, Mm -hmm. which has never happened before. And Grace, I want to particularly ask you, because when we have these conversations about issues of race and gender, lots of times the young people you're dealing with, folks will say, well, that's you old people are still grappling. But the young people are seeing different kinds of experiences. I wonder from the youth that you deal with, mm-hmm. this is their world, mm-hmm. if they are feeling supported or if they are feeling the kinds of level of fear that both uh, EJ and, and Jansen have portrayed. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So uh, Bagley works with LGBTQ youth and our priority populations within that are transgender youth and youth of color and, and youth who are facing economic challenges, including youth who are homeless. And and they're on the front lines of experiencing the harassment and discrimination and violence that often is directed at young people, at young LGBTQ young people, and specifically trans people in particular. And youth of color, we, we know that that the, the rate of violence against trans women of color is among the highest of all, the combination of racism and transphobia. And so they are afraid. They're, they are facing this every day. They live with this, and uh, they are concerned about a state that is, has a reputation for, for being um, supportive and tolerant, but to know that their very rights are being put on the ballot for public vote next year for is scary. reversal, exactly. actually. Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. Yes. Well, and if I under understand the statistics correctly, often being trans or is why they're on the street, right? They yes. got kicked out yes. of their families. Right, right. right. Yeah. yeah. And uh-huh. I'll just add that this campaign, this debate is going to create a toxic environment yes. uh, full of hate, yeah. particularly mm-hmm. for young people. Mm-hmm. And at a time when we are seeing an epidemic of violence against trans people, particularly trans women of color, mm-hmm. I'm very fearful about the impact that the public rhetoric will have on the LGBTQ community, but particularly the trans community. And it's all the more incumbent on all of us to make sure we take care of each other. And we've already seen that in the earlier advocacy efforts to secure these protections and before with uh, those who have come out and said the most hateful, horrendous things. And young people hear that, adults hear that, and that absolutely, Jansen's right. It, It creates a toxic climate. So even if we win at the ballot, there's still damage that's been done. Here's a quote from a recent press release from the Massachusetts Family Institute. We should not require women to sacrifice their privacy for the sake of sexual charades. So it appears from that statement that there is a fundamental misunderstanding about you know, what being transgender is. Um, and where women don't feel safe. Right. Let's just be real well, here. Yeah. So I'm more the, terrified yeah. in a parking lot than I am in a restroom. Yeah, but that's part of what the public conversation has to address, I think, or what, as this goes on. Or what oh. most sexual violence advocates would say, most of the violence is coming from people that women know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on. This gave a lot of people pause. Um, The HIV program funds, been already assigned, already budgeted, are now going to be reshuffled because President Trump has announced his new opioid initiative. And of course, everybody wants to know, well, where does the funding come from? Well, part of the funding is coming from taking monies from the battle against HIV which, by the way, the numbers are going up, and it's all part and parcel of re-education and understanding of where medicines are and all of that. But the bottom line is some of the funding, so they're robbing Peter to pay Paul. That's that's, that's the bottom line. Grace, what impact is this going to have? Uh, People are 
needless to say, folks who are in the field of HIV and others who are suffering from it understand this impact. HIV prevention funding from the state and from the federal government has been a cornerstone of of focusing on on the epidemic and also LGBT folks who are disproportionately affected by the epidemic, as well as communities of color and those who are LGBTQ and of color. And so any effort to roll back funding support will be have a devastating effect on our community. We know here in Massachusetts that a significant portion of the state's HIV AIDS line item was cut by Governor Baker and the legislature. And that's before we had heard this. That right. was before this, right. Okay. And and the legislature was able to restore some of that, but not all of that. And that meant that there's less money to give out to the organizations and programs that provide critical life-saving support to our community. Now, do you think that this is, EJ, this is a fundamentally because people may think HIV is over as a crisis, as an epidemic, as a, as a major health concern. So if you got to take money from somewhere... Why not there? Do you think that's why? No, I, I'm not. I'm not I, saying that. I, no, no, I'm, I'm not saying, saying I'm you wondering. Think that. I, no, I, if that's somebody in making a decision about where monies will come from can assess. Well, what kind of public response will I get if I do this? Well, I don't think it's that there's a sense that it's over. I think there's more a sense that gay people and black people are marginal and can be marginalized, and that's where the epidemic's growing. Is right. If, if I've got it right, young gay men and um, men of color who have sex with men. Yes. Yeah, yeah. you want to weigh in? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And mm. I think, you know, the epicenter of the epidemic is particularly with black men who have sex with men. Right. But, I mean, to steal money from HIV prevention and putting it towards opioid just kind of undermines basic public health, you know, especially given the rate of transmissions amongst using unclean needles. We just actually had a case that we won where the county of Barnstable on the Cape had shut down a needle distribution program that the aid services organization out there was um, running for many years and was saving lives and preventing HIV and hepatitis transmission. And we actually just litigated that case all the way up to the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, which affirmed that these programs are not only legal, but they save lives, Mm -hmm. right? So we really have to kind of be looking at both of these epidemics hand in hand because they really are. And so what I also hear you saying is that you can't really separate out. It's not siloed. In other words, there's so much overlap when we start talking about public health and various communities that are impacted. You can be in more than one community that's Mm -hmm. impacted. And by the way, the whole point of making sure that the epidemic does not spread is because the people who don't have it need to be also protected as well. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have the funding for this, then what happens? Because a big part of this funding is education. And it's a a critical point, too. I mean, we have the tools and the opportunity right now to get to zero. And there's a campaign in Massachusetts and across the country to get to zero, uh, Mm -hmm. zero transmissions, zero infection rates. And the ways that we'll do that certainly is through treatment and prevention, and often treatment is prevention. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that we've also are starting to understand is that with new medications such as PrEP, you can reduce your um, risk of getting infected with HIV to almost zero, right? right. And so we have the tools mm-hmm. in, in hand, and now we just need to have the resources to make sure we can carry out that strategy. Right. This is not the time to cut back on funding when we have made so, so much progress over the decades. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Grace Sterling Stowell of the Boston Alliance of Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual, Transgender Youth. You just heard her. Jansen Wu of Boston Glad and E.J. Graff of Brandeis University. We're discussing the latest LGBTQ news you may have missed. 
Let's go back to now the political aspect of moving the money, because EJ, I think, appropriately said, do you really think that's the issue, (laughs) is that people think it's over? Okay, I'll cede that and say, now we have a political situation where the president probably feels pretty certain that his major constituency will not be upset by moving monies from a community that they have they are suspicious about over to many communities that are suffering in an opioid crisis. And by the way, that addresses his one of his campaign promises, mm-hmm. which was to go right at taking care of the opioid crisis that exists. How do you get people to see that doing it this way is not good for anybody overall? Because there are people who are in crisis mode about opioids, rightly so. Mm-hmm. And they're like, hey, we just got to get some money over here. I don't care where it comes from. Well, I think it's a problem in seeing it as either or, that, that it's either we're, we're going to address one issue or we're going to address another issue. Both are really important, and the funding is there to support both. And it concerns me that it was framed as taking away from one to support another, because then it pits constituencies against each other and communities against each other when we should be fighting together as it was shared goals to end both epidemics. Is there any chance that some of the, that this would be reversed in the way that this the funding is handled here? That's your front, Jason Jensen. <laughs> you're going to know legally if there's any chance, or if you're hearing from legislators that are saying, "Wait a minute, we we can't for all the reasons that have been stated around this table, we can't do that. We can't afford to do that." I think that our greatest chance of reversing, you know, the rollback of so many of the rights and protecting the resources for all of our communities is really going to be about making our voices heard. I just note that Elton John was just, it's just, I thought it was ironic, was just in town being honored at Harvard University for his ongoing efforts to fight HIV and AIDS. He got the Harvard Foundation's Peter J. Gomes Humanitarian Award uh, in a ceremony. And as we know, he's done quite a bit of work and continues to do a lot in raising money for this important cause. All right. I'm very interested and excited about something that is going to happen in Massachusetts, it looks like, adding a gender option to the driver's licenses. Let's take a listen to WGBH's Philip Martin's story on Massachusetts' push for a third gender option on IDs. A driver's license is the most frequently used document to prove identity. So, after a 16-year-old constituent sent Senator Karen Spilka a letter... I went to my P.O. box, picked it up, came home, and uh, read it, and was just so moved by their letter talking about 15 years old, looking forward to the license, and yet feeling a lot of stress and anxiety because they will be forced to choose male or female, and they don't feel identity of either. So, Senator Spilka is sponsoring a bill to allow licensed applicants to choose X. It doesn't harm anybody by somebody choosing X as not identifying with either male or female. A spokesperson for the Registry of Motor Vehicles says they are upgrading their system to provide a third option on gender. That's very interesting for Massachusetts. Other states have done this. We should say in other parts of the world, this is no big deal. But this is a giant step here. Absolutely. The, in particular, to so the young people that I work with, the significant number identify as gender non-binary, as, as identifying as neither male or female or, or both. And so this is a step forward to support people being able to identify and be seen in the way that they identify. And so I'm certainly excited to see the progress and as we move forward in this, because this will make a significant difference in the lives of both youth and adults. 
Jensen? What I love about this is that it's, you know, seems like it's really was initiated by a young person, right? Mm -hmm. And while gender non-binary people have been around forever, it really is something that the younger generation has really lifted their voices on. And so mm -hmm. I think that's so important to be following that leadership. Mm -hmm. I'll say that, you know, at GLAD, from kind of the legal perspective, you know, our kind of mantra is that your identification documents don't define who you are but they are really important protections from discrimination, mm -hmm. and they can also convey misinformation as well. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, our goal is to make sure that these documents that are used every mm -hmm. time you have to go, you know... Get um, on a plane exactly. or whatever. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, they're just so ubiquitous. We mm -hmm. want to make sure that these identity documents facilitate people's ability to live their lives free of discrimination and violence. I'm so excited about this. As um, Jansen says, non-binary identifying people have been around forever. There's traditional categories of third gender in other parts of the world, mm -hmm. which is why South Asia in particular has led on this. India, Pakistan, Nepal all have a third gender option. I think Germany has one that was specifically for intersex people who are biologically in between, and California and Oregon have them right now. But once you have it, it's for whomever, and mm -hmm. it's one of the protectors against violence, right? Mm -hmm. You don't get beaten up for not being what the marker is on your driver's license. Mm -hmm. You can vote without being challenged. I did talk to a young trans man who a couple of years ago was humiliated at his polling place just trying mm -hmm. to vote because mm -hmm. he still had the F on his driver's license, and oh. he was mm -hmm. not presenting as F in any way, mm -hmm. and the people who were bringing him into the polls made poll huge... Mm -hmm. Yeah, the mm -hmm. poll workers mm -hmm. were not exactly friendly about that. Mm -hmm. So it can affect your life in large and small ways. Well, even yeah. once it's added to the uh, licenses, it's going to take some public education and some understanding in all of these settings for people to do it. But, you know, one of the things that we I think we have to talk about when a small but quiet statement is made in this way is sort of the psychological impact of this. I mean, we've been talking in terms of legal and identification and all that, but what does that mean psychologically for so many? You talked about the humiliation, EJ. I wonder, Grace, if you could speak to that. Yeah. Yes, I think mm -hmm. for so many people mm -hmm. forcing us to choose, you know, if, if those are, are there are only two options, whether it's on an, a driver's license or an intake form or an employment form or all the, all the forms that we fill out in healthcare throughout our lives, and only having two choices and having neither of them reflect how we identify, not only is it presents risks around people outing us in the way that uh, EJ described that person at, at the poll, but also psychologically that we're picking what's the best of, of two bad options. And that takes a toll on saying, well, I guess I'll do this or I guess I'll do that or I'm trying to minimize the damage. And that over time, again, we know takes its toll. So this is really an exciting possibility where for the first time, many people will be able to identify themselves and be recognized in the way that they identify. That's my guest, Grace Sterling Stoll. She is here with me, along with E.J. Graff and Jansen Wu, and we're talking about the local and national news impacting queer communities in America. And if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I wonder if you would speak to people who are listening to this conversation saying, really, this is way <laughs> a bridge too far from where I am. What are you talking about? X on the driver's license? Please help me. You know, I want to be, if not supportive or empathetic, I'm trying to get there, but this is hard. You know, give, speak a little bit about that if you would. Jansen, when I left, I'll start off with you. 
I'd say that's a really normal reaction. Mm. I know I think there's, for all of us, there are issues, there are life experiences that are so foreign to us and they just seem like not really relevant or maybe it's hard to understand and that's really normal. What I would also say is that for so many people in our society, in our nation, this is core to their everyday lives. Mm. And it has real impacts and it can have real harms for people. And so, you know, for those folks who are still struggling, I would say that having that conversation with the folks who you may not know, you may not know well, but you want to learn a little bit more to approach that with some curiosity, mm. with some empathy, I think is, you know, usually a pretty good step. All right, well, what is legal is the trans ban that was put into place originally by President Trump. He made a statement, seemed to take his generals and everybody else by surprise, tweeted out that from now on, transgender people are no longer allowed in the military. So first, let's listen to Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders as she talks to the press after President Donald Trump tweeted out the desire to ban trans people from the military. This was July 26. This was a military decision. This was about military readiness. This was about unit cohesion. This was about resources within the military and nothing more. Huh? <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I'll let you start, EJ, with your response. Um, I, w- I should say that right after uh, the president made his announcement by tweet and Sarah Huckabee Saunders responded, then it was announced that General Mattis was going to take six months to review this. Mm-hmm. And since then, most recently, a federal district court has said, we no, we're blocking at least a good part of what he wanted to achieve in the military ban, though the president has, has said that he's going to come back. Yeah, this was entirely a sop to his religious right base. The military had already said, let's move ahead. This is this is fine. They've done their studies. They're on board. This is kind of the opposite of what happened a gazillion years ago on Don't Ask, Don't Tell when the president was willing to go forward on inclusion and the military was not ready. The military now is ready and Trump needed whatever he needs when he throws out these culture bombs and made his tweet. And the military has been slow walking it. My understanding, Mm. I'm not on the inside of Mm. the Pentagon, is to make sure it doesn't happen, to give all the room the courts need to get in the way. So if I could actually mm, just, mm -hmm. you know, add a few things there. Mm. Actually, I don't think the military is slow walking it. Oh, really? I'm wrong. Um, So this is actually one of GLAD's cases. Mm -hmm. Um, It was GLAD's case that won the preliminary injunction on the district court that put a halt to Trump's transgender military ban. And it's a great decision, although we expect that to be appealed. So it's not the end of the story. And like EJ was saying, I mean, Trump's orders to the Pentagon and to the defense secretary was entirely not based on, you know, military reasons, not based on military readiness, not based on unit cohesion, not based on the resources, because the military, as EJ had said, had studied this for an entire year, had consulted with the military leaders, had consulted with the 17 other countries who have allowed transgender troops to serve without any negative consequences. And what they found is that there was no impact Mm -hmm. on military readiness, on unit cohesion, or on the resources that the military needs to be strong. And in fact, the military is only strengthened when it reflects the country is trying to protect. Mm -hmm. Now, I think the Defense Department and the administration is trying to look as make it look like they're studying this more and trying to make it look as if they're spending time to implement it. And I think that's actually some smoke and mirrors, Mm -hmm. right? Trump has made clear what he wants to see happen, and the military is putting that into effect. They had stopped providing transition-related surgeries for Mm -hmm. service members. 
it has put a hold on enlistment for people who want to serve. And then we know that, you know, starting on March 31st, openly transgender service members would no longer be able to serve. And that's still the case were it not for the court decision that GLAD just won a couple of weeks ago. Um, there's four cases now across the country. GLAD mm-hmm. is representing plaintiffs in two of those different cases, one in D.C. and one in California. And we ultimately imagine that this will be decided by the U.S. Supreme Court. And we should note that this also impacts people who have served. So there are transgender people who have served. And if this should go through, they lose their insurance. They could be dishonorably discharged. I mean, this is huge. It's not a small thing at all on many levels. I mean, the harms are occurring already, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, we know that, you know, for the 15,000 estimated transgender service members, many of our plaintiffs don't know if they're going to be able to retire in two years after 20 years of service, don't know Mm -hmm. if they're going to have child care going forward. Um, One of our plaintiffs, Dylan Cohier, who is a first-year student at the University of New Haven and joined the ROTC program, doesn't know if he's going to be able to get credits Mm. uh, for the classes he's taking that are related to ROTC his first year of service. So people are being harmed right now. Mm-hmm. Grace, I'll let you respond. And just as we had said earlier about the funding and the opioid uh, epidemic in comparison to HIV funding, that was a political decision, not a public health decision. And this was a political decision, not a military decision. Mm. It, was, it, it had nothing to do with trans people in the military, national security, protections of this country, and it was purely political. And what we've seen over and over from this current administration is putting the needs, political needs of the president ahead of the needs of the people of this country. Well, this is going to be a tough one. And, you know, because what's happening at the same time, Jensen, I'm sure you know this, is that President Trump has moved very quickly, while people may not know this, to fill those district courts that make these decisions. So the people sitting on those courts, the focus of, for many of them, has changed, really, the ideological focus. And some of them may not agree with President Trump on many issues, but they will be supporting him in some of these decisions. So it's quite a critical time as both the travel ban will come back, but but certainly this ban that has proposed. And I think he feels pretty confident that he may be able to have that support. It should be made clear, Jansen, you did talk about the winning and the continuing going forward that the court wrote that this is inherent discrimination period. So we'll see how that plays out. And it's constitutionally uh, not correct. I want to jump because I hate these uh, heavy discussions that at the end, you're so dragged down, you can barely leave the room. I'm always look to pop culture to see some of the new interesting things happening that are kind of um, uplifting. I'm going to say that. So believe it or not, Disney, Disney, I never think of Disney as being out front. Let's just put it that way. I've never seen them being out front, but yet they are in a new Disney Channel show. They have added something that's very different. This is the Disney Channel show called Andy Mac, and it is a scene from this show in which one character actually comes out during the scene. Let's take a listen. Cyrus, do you like Andy? You like I feel weird. Different. Cyrus. You've always been weird. But you're no different. Now, to my knowledge, this has been received quite well. And these are young people. Again, I come back to you, Grace, because a lot of the millennials say they just don't carry some of the stuff that the older population did. So for them, 
this is interesting, but not surprising. Yes, and I mm-hmm. think it's important that, and it's true that certainly each younger generation doesn't necessarily carry the the baggage or the the cultural expectations with uh, of previous generations. But certainly, this is validating for anyone, including young people, that seeing seeing representations of yourself in the media, whether it's movies or television or in the internet in any kind of way, is is very important both to normalize our experiences, to universalize, to sort of let people know that they're not alone. And we have to remember that young people are not a monolithic group, that depending on what community they're living, what their family situations, whether it's in this state or any state, that for many young people, this is not a yawn. This is actually mm. groundbreaking and life-saving and exciting. And it's we should always remember that Disney's not doing this just for those kids who for right. whom this, right. you know, has special meaning, but for the larger population watching. Well, listening to that, besides the heartwarming music that one expects from the afternoon special sort of thing, (laughs) what struck me was it's about the kid who is feeling good about accepting the other kid, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. That there's going to be this larger group of young people, ages whatever to whatever, who are hearing somebody come out for the first time and now they, they're they getting a little model for how to receive it. It's important. Jansen. You know, what I loved about that clip was mm-hmm. that it wasn't just about coming out, but it was about a more universal story about feeling different. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so many of us can relate to that. And that's going back to your earlier question, Callie, about, you know, the folks who are out there thinking, this feels so foreign to me. Well, I think for all of us, if you think back, you know, particularly to your childhood and think to a time when you felt different, when you felt ostracized, that's how so many people in the LGBTQ community have felt, right? And that's all we're trying to change. We're just trying to change the experiences of particularly young people, but people across the lifespan mm-hmm. in feeling not different or excluded, but included in the broad diversity of our society. Mm-hmm. I would just note that about a year and a half ago, whenever Beauty and the Beast came out, the Disney new Beauty and the Beast, there was an alleged scene in the movie that was between Josh Gad and another character, and people lost their minds. Said, we're going to boycott it. This is horrible. And here, quite quietly, they put the scene in this, and I have not heard the kind of backlash that was initial to that so well you know it's more amazing actually because i actually think disney has been more progressive than other kind of media sources um i'm actually a big country music fan and so if you really want to think about kind of the bastion of kind of traditional conservative american political opinions it's country music right Mm -hmm. and i watched this show called nashville which was on abc has moved over Mm -hmm. to cmt and they not only have an openly gay character who's a country music singer on the show but they also had their first trans character on the show as well too it was a kind of a minor character who was only in two or three episodes, but she was a physical therapist for one of the main characters. And what was amazing about it, not only was that was her presence on the show, but they didn't even identify her as trans until maybe the second or third Mm. episode. So she was just a physical therapist. And then finally, maybe the third time you see her, the main character asks, so, you know, how does your family think about you being trans? Hmm. It was just so brilliantly done, and this is on CMT. So, you know, I think we are making, you know, really great strides, and we should always keep that in mind, even when it feels dark politically these days. Thank you all for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. E.J. Graff is an award-winning journalist, commentator, and author, and a senior fellow at Brandeis University Schuster Institute for Investigative Journalism. Grace Sterling Stoll is the executive director of the Boston Alliance of Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual, Transgender Youth, and Jansen Wu is the executive director of Boston Glad. 
coming up. Lauren Rhodes has long found beauty in cemeteries. The host of the Cemetery's travel blog has captured her cross-country visits in her new book, 199 Cemeteries to See Before You Die. It's our November selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. Many of the visitors to cemeteries around the world don't know any of the people buried there. These millions of tourists find their way to these serene places to uncover history, to take in the natural beauty of the trails and gardens, or to admire the artisanal craftsmanship on tombstones and gates. In her latest book, 199 Cemeteries to See Before You Die, author Lauren Rhodes captures the stunning and sometimes quirky settings of cemeteries in compelling photographs and revealing stories. The book is our November selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. And Lauren Rhodes joins me from the studios of KQED in San Francisco. Lauren, welcome to Under the Radar. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm excited to have you. I have to say, your book came in and I thought, Okay, that's interesting. (laughs) It's not typically the kind of book we would select for our book club, but it's so interesting. Uh, Just to open it up, it's beautiful, first of all. It just has all the pictures and the stories. And I thought to myself, what kind of person spends a lot of time no pun intending, digging into the cemeteries (laughs) uh, in this country and around the world. So I'd love to know, why cemeteries? What originally drew you to your interest in cemeteries? I love them because they're sort of open-air sculpture gardens. You know, some of the most beautiful artwork in the world is in cemeteries, free for anyone who wants to go in and take a look at it. So that was sort of my starting point. But the more cemeteries I visited, I got caught up in the stories, you know, not just the stories of the famous people, but the lesser known people or people who weren't famous in life at all and curious about them. So I see cemeteries as kind of um, like libraries full of books that, you know, you have to dig into a little bit to appreciate what you're seeing. Can you remember the first cemetery you visited with this sort of frame of mind? It was kind of a gradual thing. The one that got me started, that that made me fall in love with cemeteries, was Highgate in London, which is, um, it was a Victorian cemetery that was abandoned after World War II. And uh, it's right up next to Hampstead Heath. So the plants just went wild in there. And uh, it was... It was overrun. It was really seriously vandalized. And a Friends of the Cemetery group formed and uh, now continue to run it decades later. But they've opened it up for tours and uh, now new burials as well. But it is just spectacular. And I was there in January, so you you know wouldn't think much would be going on in <laughs> January. But the primroses were blooming and... Uh, Oh, the angels, angel sculptures stood everywhere. And uh, the ivy had grown in such a way that some of them, all you could see left of the statue was like a face or an arm pointing toward heaven or something. And it was was the first time I realized that nothing lasts forever, not even stone. 
and eventually we'll all be memory. If, if we're lucky, we'll mm. be memory. But it was so beautiful. And I thought, you know, I wonder if the next cemetery is as pretty as this. And the next one I went to was Père Lachaise in Paris. And yeah, it was just yeah. as spectacular. <laughs> and, and, you know, originally I didn't travel to cemeteries. I traveled and there happened to be cemeteries along my path, but it's gotten a little out, out of hand now. I you know, find out where there's a cemetery and then build a trip around it. Well, a couple of things to note. There is a huge tourist business now with people doing just as you do, going now with an intentional purpose to find the cemetery as a place to visit. And that's quite interesting. It seems that the numbers have gone up. So your book is actually the picture book, I said, a history book and a travel guide for these tombstone tourists. But what's interesting about it, I think, is that people have different reasons for drawing them. It's not everybody doesn't appreciate the stonework or the artwork. Some people just like the serenity, which was the original purpose, of course. So I find that interesting as well. Yeah, it surprised me how wide the, the appeal is, you know, People who like to hike, people who like to bird watch, master gardeners, historians. Genealogy has brought a lot of people into graveyards. You know, they, they want to see their family graves, but once they're there, they start to see the beauty of the rest of the people buried there. So, yeah, it's impressed me how much things have changed over the years I've been doing this. When I started, I was always kind of nervous to tell people that I like to hang out in graveyards, but now, more often than not, I find out that everybody has a favorite and they're happy to share. Well, that makes you, I learned, a tapophile. <laughs> and for mm-hmm. people unfamiliar with that expression, it's people who have a love of cemeteries. I had never heard that expression before uh, researching uh, for this story. So it's a whole category of folks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, you have 199 cemeteries to see before you die is the title of your book. Why not 200? How did you come to pick these 199? Oh, it could easily have been 500. (laughs) I had to leave so many things out. Originally, when the publisher contacted me, we were talking about 99 cemeteries to see before you die. And real quickly, we decided that was not enough. It just meant you had to leave so much out. So they said, all right, you know, we need to have the book be a reasonable length, let's say 199. But even at that, I had to leave out Lenin's tomb, (laughs) <laughs> things wow. that yeah. uh, Grant's mausoleum in in Manhattan, you know, really should have been in the book. But I had a bunch of cemeteries for New York already. I wanted to pick stories, uh, cemeteries that have a story. You know, whether it's the, the place is historically important, or something happened there that was historically important, or it has famous people buried there, or the artwork is really spectacular. Some kind of uh, story I could build around the place. And they had to be cemeteries that welcome people. So there are a number that are worthy of visits, but they're not really encouraging to, to visitors. So I wanted to show the breadth and the beauty of cemeteries. This is my guest, Lauren Rhodes. She's the author of 199 Cemeteries to See Before You Die. I'd like you to read from one of the excerpts in your book, which just says it all about storytelling and guide, really. Um, And I should mention that you're the host of a cemetery travel blog. So as you put this book together, you could put it together from the perspective, the historic perspective, but also with the eye of someone who would travel and be interested in the kind of details that would that would invite a tourist. So 
Uh, this is one from the old Dutch burying ground in Sleepy Hollow, New York. And I have to say, until I read your book, I didn't realize that Sleepy Hollow was actually a real place. People familiar with it may remember the Ichabod Crane story and Sleepy Hollow legend, but didn't have any clue that there was really actually a burying ground, and in this case, the old Dutch burying ground. So if you would, read that short passage. The Old Dutch Burying Ground is one of America's oldest cemeteries, last resting place of Dutch tenant farmers, Revolutionary War soldiers, and namesakes of the characters in Washington Irving's Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Frederick Phillips, the first lord of the nearby manor, built this little church in 1685. The bricks were shipped from Holland. The burial ground, probably dating back to 1640, preceded its church by two generations. Dutch settlers' graves cluster closer around it, even though the words are Dutch, the epitaphs run in familiar patterns. Yerleid begraven, for here lies buried. In the 19th century, Irving called the building the Old Dutch Church, and the name stuck. His tale made use of names in the graveyard, even though some of the red sandstone grave markers have flaked and slivered until none of their inscriptions remain. There are Crane family graves. Katriana van Tessel, the namesake of the farmer's daughter in Irving's legend, died in 1706. Well, that was just pretty interesting to me. And that's my guest, Lauren Rose, reading from her book, 199 Cemeteries to See Before You Die. You featured a number of cemeteries here in Greater Boston, the Granary on Tremont Street downtown, Forest Hills on Forest Hills Avenue, which features sculpture and an arboretum. But probably the most well-known for those of us who live in this area is the Mount Auburn Cemetery, which you describe as the first garden cemetery in the United States. Now, what did you mean by that? Before Mount Auburn was built, people were buried in this country either in churchyards, if they lived in town, or on their property in a, like a family plot. That changed with Mount Auburn. Mount Auburn was the first time a cemetery had been designed to draw people in, to bring the living in. And it was uh, some of the city, the cemetery fathers were uh, botanists, and so they designed it as a garden that would also have graves. And the, the intention was that people would come out on the weekend and hike or bird watch or court, read poetry, you know, think deep thoughts. And the cemetery was like a mirror of heaven, that it was a beautiful, peaceful place. And people could kind of come to terms with their mortality. So before that, you know, people were buried in churchyards. Churchyards were very small and they were, you know, jammed in as they fell, pretty much. But in Mount Auburn, you could buy a family plot, and generations of your family could all be buried together. And uh, people were encouraged to buy sculpture for their plots. Or since the botanists were in control of the cemetery, they were encouraged to buy plants, trees, and bushes to beautify their area. So um, it's the precursor to city parks. People don't realize that the reason we have Golden Gate Park in San Francisco or Central Park in Manhattan is because people would travel to these cemeteries. And the, the city fathers in Manhattan, for instance, said, well, everybody's going to Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn. In the mid-1800s, Greenwood was more popular as a tourist destination than Niagara Falls. Hmm. And people in Manhattan said, you know, if we had a park like that, maybe we'd get all those tourists to come here and spend their money here instead of going to Brooklyn and spending their money there. 
So the whole tourism piece really is long term. It's not just the absolute new re-envisioning of cemeteries in the minds of some. It's always been a kind of tourist destination. Exactly. Hmm. It's it had kind of fallen out of fashion, I guess. But yeah, there is a long history. Uh, even if you think about it in those terms, the pilgrimages to the Holy Land were visits to cemeteries. Right, that people were going to visit Christ's tomb or the coming to Rome to visit the Pope's tombs. There's a, a very long, centuries-long history in the West of people going to graveyards. So I'm interested now to see that um, a number of cemeteries are quite public in their uh, reaching out to folks who do not have loved ones buried there necessarily. So I'm thinking about the Hollywood Forever Cemetery where they screen movies. This is Mm -hmm. um, in L.A. and people go out and it's a big community gathering. Laurel Hill Cemetery in Philadelphia, you can attend yoga class. Michigan Memorial Cemetery in Flat Rock, Michigan holds fishing derbies. They have a little pond (laughs) on the... So there are just so many interesting things to do to draw people in, not only to to see the gravestones and the tombstones and the and the space, the landscaping, but also activities. So mm-hmm. in essence, cemeteries are alive. They've come alive, if you will, uh, which is really kind of interesting to think about. Well, it, people take care of the things that they love. And if people don't visit cemeteries, they won't love them. So, you know, it's to a, a cemetery's benefit to encourage people to come, whether they come to run a 5K or fish. I didn't know about that, but that's a great idea. But, you know, some of them collect artwork of the people that are buried in them so that they can, you know, give a little depth to the the stories that they contain. It fascinates me. There's a cemetery north of San Francisco up in Sacramento where they have roses that were planted in the 19th century. And these strains of roses don't survive anywhere else. You know, in the rest of the, in the outside world, they've been bred and, and grafted together and all of that. But the, the original strains still exist in the cemetery. And people travel from all over the world to see these heritage roses. Well, you have noted so many interesting details in a lot, and unusual and quirky details, I would call them quirky, in a lot of cemeteries around the world and in the United States. I wonder if you'd read a passage from your book about one that's in Key Biscayne, Florida. Oh, that's one of my favorites. Oh, well, it looks beautiful in your book. The Neptune Memorial Reef in Key Biscayne, Florida. Three and a quarter miles off the coast of Key Biscayne stands a -a one-of-a-kind cemetery. Inspired by the sunken cities like Alexandria, the Neptune Memorial Reef is the world's most beautiful underwater graveyard. As conceived by Key Largo artist Ken Brandel, the monuments are huge and heavy. Five-ton columns stand on 50-ton bases. Even smaller sculptures of shells weigh 10 pounds. Brandel considers his architecture futuristic rather than classical, but the broken columns, colonnades, and massive lion echo the mythical Atlantis. Sponsored by the Neptune Society, one of the largest providers of cremation in the United States, the reef is designed as a repository for human cremains, the byproducts of cremation. Families select one of Brandel's designs, add their loved one's cremains and small mementos like fishing lures to the concrete, and the monument is placed 40 feet below the waves by divers. The reef belongs to the Green Burial Council. I discovered that in uh, National Geographic, of all places. Wow. 
That's my guest, uh, Lauren Rhodes, reading from her book, 199 Cemeteries to See Before You Die. It's our November selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. I just can't say enough about discovering many places in your book that I did not know existed, and I certainly did not know existed in the way that they do. Uh, Some of the really interesting ones in Europe, of course, and around the world, the African ones, it's just a lot to see and to take in. Here's my question to you, because it is, uh, cemeteries are still fundamentally a place where people have buried their their loved ones. As other people come to visit, is there an etiquette that has to be maintained or people should know about as they visit? Because they are sacred spaces as well as public spaces now. Um, what do you say to that? Absolutely. I, I think absolutely people should be on their best behavior As I travel, I watch tourists in churches, and they don't know how to behave. So there may be a a learning curve involved in this. (laughs) But, you know, I think it's important to treat this place as if it were sacred, because it is. You know, even the cemeteries that aren't currently in use, aren't currently burying new people, are still sacred ground. And, And they need to be respected. And that involves... In terms of interacting with other people, you know, you don't photograph mourners, you don't move things around on graves to make a better picture, and you you leave everything where you find it. You know, even if you find something that's broken, it's important to let the staff of the cemetery know so they can do something about it. But, you know, it's like an archaeological site. Once you move something out of context, it loses its meaning, and so it's important to leave things where you find them. I wonder if you think that this renewed interest in cemeteries as space, public spaces, has helped to diminish the sort of uh, stereotypical view of cemeteries as scary places that so often is touted in, in pop culture. You know, this is where horror movies take place. These are so many scary situations are set in cemeteries. And I think about movies like The Omen, Halloween, Bram Stoker's Dracula, you know, it was all cemetery-related. Has this renewed interest in the beauty, the history, moved people away from that? I hope so. I mean, you know, I think it's it's easy to vandalize something you're afraid of, you know, to prove that you're bigger or stronger or whatever. But in reality, you know, dead people are really, really at your mercy. You know, if you smash a stone, it can't be replaced in many cases. So... I think it's important to show that they're not frightening, that they're friendly and beautiful and peaceful, uh, that they have a lot to offer the living, and, and in that way, they will be protected. I have to ask, and I'm sure many people ask you, because you host a travel blog about cemeteries, you've written this book, and you've written other books, by the way, about cemeteries. What's your favorite? Oh, it's like picking my favorite child. I I knew it was. That's what everybody says, but I I still like to ask. You know, I grew up in Michigan, and um, there's a cemetery outside of Flint called Sunset Hills that is really remarkably beautiful. And they have a a sculpture collection there that the piece that caught me at first is it's called Crack the Whip. And it's a bunch of children uh, holding hands and, you know, running in a circle. And the last girl in line has lost her slipper, and it's sitting in the grass. It's separate from the rest of the sculpture. But it looks so realistic as you're driving through the cemetery. You see it down kind of in a meadow. And, you know, it brings a sense of life to the cemetery. 
and you know, Flint is not a place that people go on vacation, but it has this spectacular place. And so that's kind of what's led me to cemeteries. One of the things is that you find the most unexpected stuff. And it gives you a lot to think about, you know, children and eternity and, and the continuance of humanity. I just, I want to encourage everybody to go. And, you know, it, whether you go to your your neighborhood cemetery or if you're traveling, you just pop in. There really are cemeteries every place you go. You know, if you go to Yosemite, there's a cemetery in the valley floor. You know, family uh, estates on the East Coast have little family plots. Um, you go to Manhattan, there are pocket cemeteries tucked in everywhere. So I, I, it's just, I, they add so much to your trip. Well, you, in your own work, you've, you've been a cemetery consultant for travel and leisure for the Weather Channel. You have your blog, as we've said. You've written this book and other books. You want people to be invited in. How do you feel when someone says to you, Lauren, I picked up your book. I, I found a cemetery and visited, and I was overwhelmed with how exciting it was to be there. <laughs> That's that would be wonderful. Uh, do you hear that often? I do. I do. I, well, it's it's a case of as I've been doing the book tour for this book, and people come up to talk to me. I ask them, you know, do you have a favorite cemetery? And some people right off the bat can reel off of some place that they've been, but some of them are like me, and they're stumped, you know, by the size of the question. Well, I have a lot of favorites. Which one do I choose? It's becoming more and more common. You know, when I travel and I go to a, a new place, I ask people there, is there a cemetery I should see? And some people know of one that they've driven by, but they've never actually stopped in. But once we start to talk, they decide, well, you know, maybe they ought to take a look at that place. And that does my heart good. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I have, it did my heart good to read these stories, and there's much more history for me to delve into because I haven't gotten all the finite details from what you put in your book because there are 199 stories. There are a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but I appreciate your work here, and thank you so much for taking us down a path I would not have considered. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me here. Lauren Rhodes is the host of the Cemetery Travel Blog and the author of three books on cemeteries, including her latest, 199 Cemeteries to See Before You Die. It's our November selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at news.wgbh.org UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take QTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at Facebook.com slash Under the Radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Andrea Swahi is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. WGBH.